Let us continue our worship this morning with the reading and hearing of the word preached. Today's scripture reading will be in Genesis chapter 38, verse 15 to 26. And you can find this morning's text in uh, the Black Pew Bibles on page 41. And the Lord is honored when we stand for the reading and hearing of his word. Genesis chapter 38, 15 through 26. And the word reads, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is in Inamon at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and, say, and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent a word to her father-in-law by the man who these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, one of the proofs of the fact that uh, the Bible is not a man-made book, but is a book that has been given to us by God, are passages like the one that was just read. For the past few weeks, we have been studying the, the patriarchs. We looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, now one of Jacob's sons, Judah, and then the, the, the uh, other sons uh, that we looked at last uh, time. And as we've looked at these uh, individuals, they are not the paragons of society. They are not the, the individuals that you would look at and go, that's who I want to start my nation. That's who I want to be the leaders of, uh, of our people. Adam and Eve were rebels whose eldest son 
ends up murdering his brother, not over questions of position, of power and authority, but just out of jealousy because he was overlooked on something. Noah, the supposed hero of the flood, becomes the town drunk. Lot offers up his two daughters to a a bunch of promiscuous men. Abraham consistently messes up time and time again. And then we come to Jacob, and the bottom falls out. I mean, (laughs) this guy is a thief, he's a swindler, he's a cheat, he's a manipulator. Two of his sons end up murdering all the males in one town and then taking their women and children off as slaves. Another of his sons ends up sleeping with his his father's concubine. Ten of Jacob's sons concoct a, a plan to eliminate the favorite brother, Joseph, to get rid of him, selling him off as a slave to the Midianites and ending up in Egypt. And then comes this story that's before us today. A story of sexual perversion, of prostitution, of lust, of deception. If you're making up a story about the history of your nation, you don't put these things in there. But the Bible is not about the birth of a nation. It is about the glory of God. God who, in spite of the wickedness and the brokenness of the human race, brings about salvation for mankind. And so, as our theme from this morning's text states, the glory of God stands even in the midst of scandals in order that his purpose in creation might remain. The glory of God will be seen in spite of the wickedness of man. God will bring forth his purpose in creation through Jesus Christ. Well, we start off and ask ourselves, why is this story of Judah, of Judah's wicked sons, of his promiscuous wife, why put that in this text? And so the points of this passage that Moses desires for us to understand are laid out before us. For one thing, this passage is meant to stand as a contrast against the next chapter and what follows. Chapter 38, Judah, is going to be a contrast with chapter 39, Joseph. So, Let's compare the first verse of chapter 38 with the first verse of chapter 39. It says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. In other words, look at how that's worded. Judah is separating from his family. He is moving down wherever down is. He's he's moving away from his family. He's being separated from them. 
This is contrasted then with chapter 39, verse 1, where it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Judah moves down. Joseph is brought down. Just the wording itself tells us that God, through Moses, wants us to compare and contrast chapter 38 with chapter 39 and to see where they overlap. Judah versus Joseph. So notice then the contrast of a saint saint and a sinner. A saint and a sinner. You know, this contrast is going to come across in, in, in several ways in these two chapters. As each individual, Judah and Joseph, as they face life situations, how do they handle them? What do they do? So we begin with Judah. Judah, his wife has passed away. We didn't read that part of the chapter, but that's what has happened. Judah, his his, uh, wife has passed away, and he is now traveling to where his uh, flocks and herds are. He has buried his wife. He's traveling to where the flocks and the herds are uh, there. And on the road, he runs across an individual who is dressed like a prostitute. Verses 15 and 16. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. Now we're not going to get into the depths of the ethical situation uh, here. What are the issues that take place between Tamar, who is this woman, who was married to his eldest son, Ur, Ur died because of wickedness, so under the leveret uh, laws of marriage, if the oldest son dies without leaving an heir, then the next oldest son is to take his former wife, marry her, and produce a child to keep his name going, the, the first brother's name going. And so that's what happens, but Onan is also cursed by God, and he ends up dying. And then there's a younger brother. The younger brother is not yet of marriageable age, but it would be his responsibility when he does become of marriageable age to then marry Tamar, take her as a wife, and produce a, a, a child for each of his brothers, if possible. And so that's the, the situation there. It is a situation that's similar, for instance, to the story of Ruth and Boaz. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, their firstborn son of Ruth and Boaz, that first child that is born, is given to the mother-in-law of Ruth, Naomi. The reason for that is he has now, in a sense, become her, Naomi's child, because all of her sons had died. So it's the same situation that lies behind this rather promiscuous scene that we find in chapter 38. 
However, the story is set up as a foil to what is going to happen in chapter 39 because Joseph also is going to enter into a situation of sexual temptation. Joseph has been sold to a slave, uh, as a slave to uh, Potiphar, who is an Egyptian uh, leader. And, uh, and, and Joseph is eventually raised to be the, the, the head of the estate, to be the, the steward over everything that Potiphar owns, except his wife. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph as a young hunk, and she decides that she wants to sleep with him. Joseph is confronted with that in verse 12 of chapter 39. It says, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. Now what are we, what are we seeing here? Judah fails when he faces temptation. Joseph flees when he faces temptation. Judah fails and goes into what he thinks is a prostitute. Joseph flees from a very powerful woman. Both are placed in a similar situation. One falls, the other flees. These are two brothers. They've been raised in the same household, raised with the same training, yet one upholds the glory of God while the other one falls short. By the way, in case you're not familiar with the whole biblical story, Judah is the heir of Jacob at this point. He's not the oldest, but he is the firstborn, according to the rights of being an heir, because his older three brothers have been disqualified by their wicked behavior uh, that has happened. So Judah is the heir, but like Adam, like Seth, like Noah, like Shem, like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, now Judah too, who should be the image bearer of God in the, this godly line that is supposed to be progressing towards righteousness, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of them have fallen into sin, in serious sin. They are no longer true image bearers of God. Let me mention a second point of contrast that we see between Judah and Joseph. Judah has taken up the leadership in the family, right? By this time, he is seen as the rightful heir because of his position as the firstborn. Yet he uses his leadership for greed rather than for godliness. If you remember, those of you who were here last time, uh, we looked at uh, how Joseph's brothers had sold him off into slavery. Why did they do it? Because the leader of the pack, Judah, sees an opportunity for profit. In verses 26 and 27 of, of chapter 37, it says, Then Judah said to his brothers, Ah, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him here to the Ishmaelites. 
He may be a leader, but he is a greedy sinner who has ignored the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Let's contrast that with Joseph in chapter 39. He also has been raised up to be a leader, even as a slave, but still the steward in Potiphar's house. Verse 6 reveals Joseph's character. So he, that is Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. In other words, Potiphar recognized the integrity of Joseph. He recognized that here is a man, though a slave, who is honest, trustworthy. So this morning, ask yourself, which of these two men am I more like? Is my life marked by sexual lust, or is it marked by holy living for God's glory? Do I find myself making choices based on money and material gain, or by honesty and integrity as you serve as unto the Lord? A contrast between a saint and a sinner. For the second point of this text, notice the contrast of sins and of salvation. Of sins and salvation. You see, Jacob was a sinner who sinned. In other words, his nature was a nature that every human being has that leads us to sin, to unrighteousness. As Sean said a few weeks ago in his sermon, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It is the nature that we have as a human being to rebel against God and to live for our glory rather than living for God's glory. Therefore, Jacob, as a sinner who sinned, deserves condemnation. He abandons his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as if she was to blame for the death of her first husband and her second husband. The text even states, Judah feared that his third son would die. There's something cursed about this woman. It's her fault. Now, the scripture has made it clear that it's not her fault. It was the wickedness of the two sons. But he is going to blame her as if somehow there is a curse on her. The text even states that Judah feared that son, or that his son would die. We look at verses 7 and verse 10 in our uh, chapter 38. It says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then we jump down to verse uh, 10. It says, And what he did, this is Onan, the second brother, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. As a side note, It is important that we recognize that these individuals did not die just simply because, you know, they took sick or something like that. That may be how they died, but notice that it is God who put them to death. 
You see, God is a judge over all the earth. God is in charge of everything that happens in this world. Nothing happens by accident. We're not told in this text what the wickedness of the first son, Ur, what his wickedness is. But the term that's used here for his wickedness is the same term that's used in Genesis chapter 6 of the wickedness of humanity being so great that God destroyed them by the flood. So what we can tell is that his heart was desperately wicked. The life of this son Ur, we get a hint at it. At the beginning of this story, because we are told that Ur married Canaanite women, we're going to look more at that in a moment. But that is, gives us an indication of his heart. Because the Canaanites were worshipers of all these false gods. And they had a whole bunch of promiscuity, of, of sexual sins that were part of their lifestyle. We are told, however, the sins of Onan. Onan wanted the sexual benefits of the marriage, but he didn't want the responsibility of raising up a son for his brother. And even Judah gets in on the act of this wickedness, looking for sexual satisfaction through a prostitute, rather than finding a new wife, marrying her, and being righteous in his sexual acts. Doesn't that remind you of today? Sex outside of marriage has become fully acceptable, even within the church, even within those young people who would have premarital sex. Though it is an abomination, the scripture says, in God's sight. In our culture, women choose the pleasures of women and men with men because they can get the sexual arousal without the responsibility of having to worry about a child being born. And then there's the sin of pornography in our culture. No wonder the scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. The human heart being desperately wicked. So, does God kill us all off like he killed off Ur and Onan? Of course not. None of us would be sitting in these pews today. Many very wicked people live long lives. Some of the killer guards uh, at the, the, the various concentration camps of the Nazis in Germany ran the, the gas chambers that killed millions of people. Even some of them lived to be 90, even 100 years old. No, God doesn't kill off everyone who sins. But he does judge everyone who sins. And one day, the scripture says, we will all stand before the judge of the whole earth to give account for what we have done in this body, whether good or evil, for the treason and our rebellion against the most holy God. 
But this story that we have is about more than just punishment against human wickedness. This story is also about salvation. You see, Judah's wickedness in violating his daughter-in-law results in the birth of twins. As verse 27 states, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Both of these twins, Perez and Zerah, along with their mother Tamar, are listed in Matthew 1, the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan was different from the plan of man. And this has been a theme all the way through this book of Genesis so far. What man has meant for evil, God means for good. From chapter 3 to chapter 50, we see this theme occurring again and again. God's redemptive power to save Abraham, Isaac, and each of the individuals. We are told that in Genesis 3, the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. That the seed of the woman would destroy the power of sin, of Satan, and of self. And while it's not Perez, any more than it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, it is through their descendant, Jesus Christ, that God's plan of salvation will come. That's the message. That's the point of this text. That God takes even the wickedness of man and brings forth his purpose. So we've seen those two main points of the text, this contrast between a sinner and a saint, and between sin and God's plan of salvation. Let's also look at the patterns of this passage. Patterns are ways that an author designs a, a text. Um, in this case, the book of Genesis, the way that he organizes the materials so that we see very often, especially in Hebrew writing, many, many of these parallel events, different names of the people, but the things run along pretty much the same. And as we look at these, we need to keep in mind what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Now these things happen to them as an example, that is, all of the failures under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, all of those people that failed, he says, these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You ask why is Genesis 38 in this book? So that you learn from it. He'll go on and, and, and say in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, and he goes on and he says, they did this wrong, they did that wrong, they did that wrong. It was recorded so you don't do the same thing. That you don't make that same mistake. God revealed the failures of these patriarchs so that we might learn from them. So notice 
the sorrows of sensuality and suffering that we see in this passage. I could spend a, a lot of time on this particular pattern, which first occurs multiple times in, uh, in, in the scripture. What do we have here? We have human desires, lust, sensuality, and it leads to major suffering in the lives of those individuals. Ease, longing for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ends up with them being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Cain's desire for recognition when he feels snubbed ends up with his brother being died and him being cursed. Abraham's desire for a son causes him to go into Hagar, a slave, and brings forth Ishmael, which has been a thorn in the flesh for thousands of years to the Jews. Then there's Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba, and we could go on. Here in verse 2, we see it all over again. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now I hope you understand by now, as we have gone through this book, that again, these Canaanites are under God's curse. God has said that he is going to wipe them off the face of the earth because their wickedness was so great. And so when we read that one of the godly seed, like Judah, takes for a wife a Canaanite, it means that they are ignoring God and they are choosing to come underneath that same curse. Just as the sons of God in Genesis 6, who are the descendants of Seth, just like they saw the daughters of men, which were the descendants of Cain, and took them as wise, again, bringing about such a great curse that God wiped humanity off the face of the earth in the flood. So the Canaanites were so wicked that God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. To intermarry with them is to bring God's curse on you and on your family. And again, remember what we read back in verses 7 and verse 10. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And what Onan did was wicked in the sights of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. The desires of the heart are wicked altogether, and they will lead to suffering. It's a lesson we learn. When you think that you're smarter than God, when you think that your desires and your will and your wants can cause you to disobey God, suffering is going to come from it. Especially if you are a Christian, because the Bible says that God will discipline those that he loves those that are his. Second, I want you to notice the stupidity of seduction and shame. The stupidity of what is happening in this situation. The God who made the universe in six days can make something good out of human sin. But that doesn't mean that you should say, as Paul uh, says, uh, which he was accused of, well, let's go on sinning all the more so that God can give us all the more grace. 
In the long run, be sure your sins will be found out. If not in this life, certainly in the next. Uh, Danielle was sharing with me in uh, the uh, seminar training this morning uh, that another Christian leader bit the dust this week. A Christian comedian, um, well-known, and all of a sudden it's come out that he's been extremely promiscuous uh, in his life. Sin, the scripture says, will be found out. Judah's errors come back to haunt him. We see it in verse 18, verse 19, and verse 26. So he gave them, that is, he gave his seal, his staff, the cord, to her, to Tamar, and went into her, and she conceived by him. She arose and went away, taking off the veil she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah identified them. What is the them? It is the seal, the cord, and the staff that's, uh, that, that he had given to her. And he said, Judah identifies them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Now, the situation, as we have seen it, is Tamar is seducing her father-in-law so that she might bear children that can keep the line going. When it becomes apparent that she is pregnant, however, Judah sees this as an excuse to get rid of her. Remember, he's afraid of giving his son Sheila to her uh, to, because he thinks that, that she's cursed and, and maybe he would die too. So she, he's looking for a way out. This becomes the perfect way out. Oh, she's committed adultery. You know, she was placed to my, my uh, third son and, and look what she's done. Let's go kill her. That takes care of his problem. He can then marry off Sheila to whoever he wants to. But she's tricked him. She has his seal, his cord, and his staff. He is shamed by his own failure to be faithful to the law and faithful to his daughter-in-law. And I wonder, are there things in your life that you're afraid that people will find out? Those skeletons in the closet that, that keep you in fear that somebody might speak up, that somebody might say something about your past, a past that perhaps you haven't dealt with as a Christian. God calls us to deal with our past. Notice that Judah says, she's more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. He tried to hide it, but he couldn't. Be sure your sins will find you out. It is always best to deal with those past sins so that we might stand with a clear conscience before God and before man. There's a third thing that we see here. Notice the symbols of the staff and of the seal. The text seems to focus on the conspiracy of Tamar with Judah. But what's really important in this are those symbols that he gave to her. The staff, the cord, and the signet, or the seal. They're mentioned in verse 17 and 18. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? 
she replied, your signet, your cord, your staff, that's in your hand. The signet is the family crest. It is what you use to put your stamp on the wax that says, this is mine, this is from me, whether it's a letter or some other important uh, document. The staff was not simply a walking stick. It would have been engraved with the family icons, the symbol that he was the head of the Judahite clan, and in this case, now head even of Jacob's clan. And the blessing that Jacob is going to give to Judah in chapter 46, there is a play on this very scene. Chapter 49, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Wait a minute. The scepter did depart from him. Tamar had it. He gave it away, just like Esau had given away his birthright. Judah has surrendered his power, his authority. He had given it to a woman for sex. Esau did it for a bowl of soup. You see that they do not take seriously their responsibilities. Once again, the eternal purpose of God is jeopardized by the foolish, sinful actions of man. And I wonder, my friends, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Are we serious about our walk with God? Do we recognize that we are called to be kings, children of God, rightful heirs to the God of the universe? Do our lives reveal that? Because you and I are the staff. You and I are the rod We bear the image of the immortal God. And how we live is reflective upon Him. Do we cast it aside for something as trivial as a bowl of soup or a one-night stand? And yet, once again, God intervenes and in doing so continues to march towards the ultimate purpose of salvation in the purpose and the work of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third point in this passage, and that's the promises that we find in this passage. You see, the biblical stories are never just there to fill up space. Yes, they will teach us what we should do or what we shouldn't do, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us. But they are there for more. They always have a purpose, and that purpose is to reveal the glory of God ultimately, through Jesus Christ. God's promises, given before the foundation of the world, given to the patriarchs, and through them, given to the human race. Ultimately, every passage of Scripture reveals Satan's attempt to break free from the curse of his death, to be freed 
from the promise that God had made in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Revelation 12 is a revelation of the historical conflict between Christ and Satan, between the spirit realm, where the great serpent, the dragon, attempts to destroy the woman's seed, who is going to be Christ. But he doesn't win. He doesn't win here in chapter 38, and he doesn't win in the book of Revelation. Notice as well then the signs of the superintendence of God and the survival of the godly line. Everything in this world is in God's hands. Nothing can be done that will thwart his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. Judah had three sons. Two of them are killed. It seems that the third son is not being married off. There is a chance that Judah will not have any seed after him. That his line will die. And yet Judah's line is the line of Christ. If Judah does not have children, then the promise of God is null and void. So God superintends, watches over, even the dallying of Judah with Tamar. So it's at a time of Tamar's ovulation, so she can become pregnant. And we can read the genealogy of Judah in chapter 46. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, and on goes the line. God has made it possible for Judah's line to survive. The television show Survivor is nothing compared to the survival of the godly line as God will protect it all the way down until the birth of Jesus Christ. While the dragon is there wanting to devour the child, God is protecting that child. God is on the move. God cannot be stopped. And that is not only true for Jesus Christ, it is true for every child of God. If you are a child of God, God is watching over you just as he watched over the line of Judah. Notice also the signs of sovereignty and Savior. That brings us to the ultimate purpose of this story, of every story in the Bible. The sovereignty of God that leads to the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the promise of his second coming. As we shared a few minutes ago, Jacob's blessing on Judah in chapter 49 proves the point. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of of the peoples, the nations. This takes us back to chapter 10 and the list of all those nations, all those peoples. One of Judah's line will maintain 
that staff and rule over all. 1,800 or so years after Moses wrote the book of Genesis, Matthew records these words for us in the genealogical record of Jesus Christ. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. Nothing is in the scriptures simply to fill space. All of human history revolves around that one crucial event, the coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of scripture reveals the absolute pitiness of the human race. Unless God has mercy on us, the human race is doomed. The funny thing is, everyone knows it. Even the most evil in our culture understand this truth. There is in the human heart a need in every generation for a Lone Ranger, for a Roy Rogers, for a Gandalf. And yet Hollywood has also understood that there is no such thing as a pure, good guy. All the contemporary heroes, Iron Man, Wonder Woman, the Avengers, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and all the rest, all of them have conflicted personalities just like Judah. Like Romans 7 says, they want to do good, but the bad wins out. There is only one good, only one truly righteous individual, and he is no movie star. Jesus Christ is the perfection of what God has created us to be, and all the rest are poor imitations. That is the promise of this passage. In spite of our sin, in spite of our wickedness, there's a God seated in heaven who rules over all things in this world. And he will bring forth his purpose. He will bring a savior. And he will have an inheritance. And Satan is defeated. That's God's promise to us. And so in conclusion, how often we look on our past and we wallow in our brokenness without considering that God has the power and the desire to transform your heart, your mind, your past for his glory. Know that if you are a child of God. God is at work on your behalf for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, and we recognize that is only the grace of God that allows us even to live. We could be like Ur, we could be like Onan, and you could strike us dead. In a moment, you could wipe us out. We are as if we were hanging above the pits of hell by a spider web that could at any moment snap, as Jonathan Edwards said. We're walking the plank. It is a rotten piece of wood. And the only thing that's protecting us from falling into that is the whim of God. But we thank you that you have done more than just somehow barely cause us to make it through. But through your son, Jesus Christ, you have sent forth your power on behalf of your people that we might be saved from ourselves. 
and from Satan and from sin. Forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the authority, now and evermore. Amen.